In the name of the great first alien life from the worlds of light, the sublime that stands above all works. Nice. At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello, and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast about all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. And welcome also to the first transmission of this new and terrifying year of our Lord, 2019. In this episode, we will be returning, as spectres are want to do, to pay tribute to some of the thinkers and artists who helped shape this podcast over its one year of existence. I am Lucy, and as ever, I am joined by Sean. Sean, hello. Hello. As we've mentioned in the past, the project of Weird Signal was intended in part to celebrate the work of our critical leading light, Mark Fisher, who died nearly exactly two years ago at the time of recording, and to do what small part we could to contribute to his legacy. But by extension of that, we also wanted to use the ideas he formalised to understand the strange realities of the post-2016 climate in which we find ourselves, and what it means for art, politics and the world. Because even if we never saw the end of history, we're certainly at the end of a lot of things and the beginning of some others. As such, we're going to be talking about another figure whose death in 2016 is still resonating three years on, David Bowie. Right, so David Bowie, we have shockingly, I think, only mentioned once in passing on this podcast, which is during the Hardware episode where you talked about reality breaking with the death of Lemmy, and quite possibly I added with the birth of Lemmy. But nevertheless, you know, there was something of a schism happened, a skits, if you will. But um, he certainly had a kind of enduring influence on both the podcast and our lives. And I think we're going to be getting a lot of that out tonight. The death of Lemmy was first impact. The death of Bowie was second impact. And yes, that is a Neon Genesis Evangelion reference. Nice. Which is coming back to Netflix. Whee! Well, back. You know, it's never... never Just arri- it's arriving. Yeah, it's arriving into my life. I've never impacting. seen it. Impacting. So it is impacting onto Netflix. Anyway, so uh, the reason also we're talking about Bowie... Because he's David Bowie. Because he's David Bowie. And also, this podcast deals with the kind of fragmenting and increasing unreality of the world we inhabit. And what better time, what better way to um, articulate that than through a figure who never quite existed in reality. Um, I I would describe Bowie as, to some extent, a kind of hyper-real entity. Um, in the way in the way that, well, in the sense that, with any work of Bowie, it's difficult to describe him in the same terms as you would another artist, actor, writer, or anyone working in their selected medium. Um, all we can say is that the thing is Bowie. Bowie is the piece. It is Bowie doing Bowie. And you know, this is this is, um, I think, an extension of a kind of a. A kind of Warhol, Andy Warhol-esque understanding of popular art. I think that's that's kind of ground zero that a lot of people go to when they're trying to understand exactly what Bowie is. But I think um, the difficulty that arises with analysing Bowie is, is that you can talk about someone like... Um, you can talk about someone like Tom Cruise being a sort of hyper-real entity in that... I say Tom Cruise because kind of the, the idea of the megastar as we sort of understood it in the 90s at the peak of his powers was... Um, has kind of gone out a bit with the internet. It's, it's something we're going to have to pick apart in another episode. But um, but even then, they've got that kind of star power. They're these lofty entities. But at the same time, they're nominally famous for being good at their job, which is acting. But we can't really think about Bowie in the same way because it's it's Bowie the musician doing an act, or being an actor, but 
Bowie is already an actor doing the act of being a musician. He was, and he was quite open about this fact that he, um, he was pretty much doing a kind of fake it till you make it approach um, <laughs> and wanted to be a writer initially, I think. He, he gave him one early, quite frank interview. There's it's some interesting parallels with some other artists there in that um, Bowie being a deliberate construction of a rock star. Um, are the, it's interesting that... Um, one of my favourite musicians, uh, I'll ever say slightly embarrassed us today, is Marilyn Manson. And Manson cite, has cited more than once Bowie is actually his, one of his primary influences. Mm. And Manson was doing the same thing. He was going out of his way to construct the image of himself as the outrageous rock star mm. before he could actually become that. There's a quote from an interview where he was asked, are you ever worried that your image will overshadow your music? To which he sagely replied, no, I'm worried that my music will overshadow my image. Mm. Which is not a, actually clever. Well, but anyway. <laughs> um, but and, and I think it's also interesting that the only figure really <clears throat> who I can think of as having a similar kind of mythic um, energy to them. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> Elvis. Oh God, yeah. Elvis is also Elvis isn't real. There was never an Elvis. No. Elvis was always hyper real. Yeah. Um, or uh, or retroactively constructed himself as a hyper real entity after the fact of his existence. That's um, the that's the official weird signal angle. And no, I don't yeah. know what that means. And we picked up on this a little bit in um in our discuss uh, discourse with um discussion <laughs> with El Sandoval, which consisted of discourse, uh, <laughs> which was real. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about um that very, very point pertinent moment in Blade Runner twenty forty nine where the hologram of Elvis appears and it's like, yes, Elvis was always a hologram. What better kind of what better allegory? What better? What a better meaningful signifier, signifier and and lack thereof a sign um, to to illustrate this point of like what the hell are what the hell are androids? But that listen to our listen to our Sander for episode for more on, information on that. But getting back to Bowie, um, so he kind of played around with the character of Bowie and Bowie doing other characters throughout his life, and this was going right up to the point of his death, um, which came just after the release of his final album, Black Star, uh, which was itself a kind of, which was an articulation of his own death through music and had that wonderful video, which I think we just need to do an episode on at some point. Yes. Um, just go watch it. It's, it's so, so good. It's interesting as well that we've not even um, mentioned the obvious fact of Bowie's consistent and repeat and repeating just playing with personas and assuming deliberately assuming these new characters that he's playing in his album sometimes with success and sometimes with slightly less success who the hell remembers halloween jack um but Gosh, <laughs> we're gonna get some angry tweets oh i like i like I, diamond wait, dogs i like diamond dogs i want, the first some, I want some enthusiastic d halloween jack tweets yes <laughs> um but yes, this was this is what we mean when we one of the things we mean about Bowie deliberately constructing himself as a rock star that he is moving through these different characters, these different personae that he is engineering to articulate different concepts and different ways of being a rock star. And we also all I think we sometimes forget the fact that Bowie was very was very nearly a failed rock star. He was very very nearly a one hit wonder with um, Space Oddity. Mm. Which, because um, there was a quite a few years between that and Ziggy Stardust, really? in which he was in the wilderness. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean that's when he was still doing really interesting work, like Honky Dory comes out in that time. Oh, yeah. But um, 
and even though that's got some proper solid tr- classic Bowie tracks on there, it's as an album. I don't think it's one of the ones you really like think of as one of the big Bowie albums. Maybe mm. um, Bowie's some of the most, most interesting and experimental and spooky stuff is on there, which we'll come to later. Yes, but um, as well as this episode, uh, which is going to be dropping on January eighth, fingers crossed, we get everything <laughs> done in time. As well as that, um, this episode. Uh, is also something of a memorial to another figure who passed away more recently, who has also had a very, very profound impact on this podcast. And that is the director, Nicholas Rogue. Which is why we're talking about The Man Who Fell to Earth. The Man Who Fell to Earth was released in 1976 and was Nicholas Rogue's next film after his 1973 masterpiece Don't Look Now. It stars David Bowie as the eponymous man, Thomas Jerome Newton, an alien who has taken on the guise of a human and has travelled to Earth, nominally to transfer water to his drought-stricken homeworld. Using his extra-human scientific knowledge, he sets up a business and becomes something of a Steve Jobs figure, a reclusive, vastly wealthy genius. However, after falling in love with a hotel bellhop named Mary Lou, played by Candy Clark, Newton is slowly seduced by the world and its transient pleasures, drink, sex and television. He begins to increasingly lack the ability to control himself and his efforts, until eventually his attempt to return home is prevented by a shadowy government corporate conspiracy. His assets are seized, his business, part- his business partners murdered, and he is trapped in a luxurious prison where he's exposed to a cruel battery of tests. Eventually, he finds his prison abandoned and unlocked, and he is able to wander out into the world, broken and lost. Many years later, one of his former employees, Dr Nathan Bryce, played by Rip Torn, one of the few to know his true identity, discovers that Newton has released a record named The Visitor. A seemingly ageless Newton is forlornly hoping that maybe the music will eventually reach his lost wife on his homeworld. Newton simply falls asleep, and the movie ends. Don't you feel bitter about it? Everything. Bitter? No. We'd have probably treated you the same if you'd come over to our place. Is there no chance, then? Of what? Of course there's a chance. You're the scientist, Dr. Bryce. You must know there's always a chance. The timing of where The Man Who Fell to Earth came in relation to Bowie's career is quite a crucial one. It was released in 1976. You're 76. 76, which is the first year of what's regarded as his Berlin era. Uh, And that's quite a crucial one. His Berlin era kind of nominally produced three albums, which were Station to Station, Low. Because this, I think this was the last album before. Yes, Low Heroes and Lodger. Uh, Because there was uh, Low coming out in 77. Because I think that... uh, Cause, yeah, because the low out, because the Berlin albums are the ones that come after mm. Station to Station. Because okay. Station to Station is the cocaine. Are album. we keeping this? Because basically, um, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Thing, but, let's keep this. Listen, this is how we actually produce the podcast okay. through mistakes and error and fact checking as we record. Um, but the thing is, like, no, I think um, 
even though, yes, technically it was actually recorded in LA, I think he had moved to Berlin at this point, and it's kind of thematically and biographically and kind of artistically connected to his Berlin years. Um, because crucially, the move to Berlin uh, was triggered by two key factors in Bowie's life, one of which was um, essentially wanting to kind of wind down from the hyper-excessive um, character that he'd, be- he'd built up and then embodied uh, that was Ziggy Stardust. Um, but also uh, to try and um, kick a couple, well, basically kick a uh, mean cocaine habit that he'd picked up during that time out in LA. And he decided that the best solution to this was to move into a Berlin flat with Iggy Pop. So <laughs> to literally wake up to Angry Bob's industrial dick every morning. And as we see in the film Hardware, that doesn't really work out too well for maintaining sanity. Um, but also he was kind of um, interesting interesting move as well because he was also trying to um, escape a bit of the press attention that built up around him after... Uh, something of a flirtation with fascism. He'd... Well, what might have been a flirtation of fascism or just, oh, God, the cocaine! Oh, well, I mean, basically, uh, yeah, he was playing... I mean, this is this is going back to his whole fucking... His Andy Warhol thing is that he, um, he, he was playing with the aesthetics of extremism, of fascism, in the same way that, you know, Liebach are doing. And are indeed, you know... Tom of Finland, <laughs> and by dint of that, Freddie Mercury I'm... and uh, Jeff, uh, uh, the breaking the law guy, breaking the law guy, breaking Which the one? law, breaking the law. Oh shit! Um, Tell us who that is, listener. Anyway, okay, the, the, uh, I yeah. think there was Judas, cert- Priest. Judas Priest, Judas Priest, the guy from Judas Priest. <laughs> the... uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a well, yeah. But I mean, the the point I make here is that. Um, his fascination with fascism that he kind of did make some properly shit-lordy comments about while cooked up in interviews. Um, like, oh, I think, I think uh, you know, Britain's ready for a fascist leader, but also I think I'd make a great... I think he said either I'd make a great fascist leader or I'd specifically make a great Hitler. And I think um, this is kind of too deep a territory to go into here on this podcast, but, you know, that's, that's playing around with the idea of political aestheticization theorized by Walter Benjamin, mm. who um, who we're definitely going to be talking about a lot on this um, podcast. Another point, because he's like the key figure of the Frankfurt School. Um, he was. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that, that I, face. I wasn't saying anything, I was just looking at you. <laughs> okay, um, okay uh, but basically, yeah, so um, I think that, that the culmination of that was where he supposedly was photographed doing a Nazi salute in Victoria Station. He claims to this, well, not to this day, but like to, to the point of his death that uh, he was mid-wave and had been caught at an awkward angle. Uh, but in any case, he wanted to get out of get out of the spotlight a little bit, and so he went to Berlin, and um, and that's where he started doing. <laughs> Following Interest- accusations of fascism, he moved to Berlin. <laughs> I think he was also during the Berlin era stopped by security, and they checked his bags, and it was full of Nazi memorabilia, which was illegal to own in Germany at that. We're point. seeing a lot of um, Lemmy parallels here. Oh, jeez, yeah. Yeah. Okay, what are we going to do for the Lemmy episode? Was Lemmy a character played by David Bowie? <laughs> 
It's like in um, that, did you see Charlie Brooker's like, summary of 2016? Yes, I did. Uh, it turns out Donald t- Trump was actually just a character played by David Bowie who's still alive and it was all just a dream. And is going on tour with Kanye West this summer. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I think Bowie's interest with fascism does actually have a deeper root, though, because um, especially with its connection with his interest in the occult, and this is one of those episodes where we're going to be talking a lot about the occult, um, if we go back again to his album Hunky Dory and to the very strange dreamlike song Quicksand, the opening lines of which are I'm closer to the golden dawn, immersed in Crowley's uniform of imagery. I'm living in a silent film portraying Himmler's sacred realm of dream reality. Uh, there's also the, uh, I think, I'm not sure if there are references to Goebbels or not in this song. In the lyrics I have open from Google, it's saying Garbo rather than Goebbels. I'm certain it says Goebbels in the well, song. Okay. Isn't that but, interesting? I mean, he could be uh, talking about Greater Garbo, a start of the silent era. Really conceive it. That'd make more sense, actually. Anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway. So the point is that there's this. There is this. Then this is something that actually specifically goes back to a book called *The Morning of the Magicians*. Um, of this connection between. That's where a lot of the ideas we have popularly about the connection between the Nazis and the occult actually come from. And as we mentioned in God, which episode was it where I talked about this? Because I remember talking about this before. It was. Uh, it might have been hardware actually. Again. I think it was probably hardware. That was a probably... very occult heavy episode. Yeah, because the a lot of the um a lot of the ideas we have about the Nazis being obsessed with the occult aren't true at all. They're complete they're completely false. But what is true is that there was a kind of an occult bedrock to German nationalist thinking that was explored in uh I think his name is Nicholas Goodrick Clark's book um the occult roots of nazism mm. which isn't to say that hitler was an initiate or anything like that it was just that part of the milieu of folkish thought in germany at the time was informed by uh, occultist ideas but mm. um but anyway so, so that book also side note is on the shelf in that fabulous danzig video where he's going through his book collection <laughs> i've already linked to it once but i'll do it again yeah the um so anyway so in Burry's mind there's always this this already that connection exists and we're going to be talking about some of the occult stuff in station to station specifically yeah uh, in a little bit but would it would you would you argue that kind of station to station was maybe more of a move to a different form of occultism or kind of a different um you know maybe more of an emphasis on a specifically gnostic uh worldview but i mean we'd need to go into gnosticism before that well it's (laughs) funny you should say that lucy because i have a great big ton about gnosticism here do it um so when i was watching this movie because this was enough one of those films that i watch it for the first time in prep for this podcast and when i got to the end of it i just said to myself very pretentiously and i said in exactly this tone of voice well it seems to me that this is a gnostic parable (laughs) and in order to explain that i need to try and actually articulate what the hell gnosticism is and this proved to be a surprisingly difficult thing to summarize gnosticism doesn't refer to a unified religious or initiatory tradition it refers to a milieu of uh, interrelated spiritualities and mystery schools and religions that share certain um key concepts and key languages and key imagery uh the category gnostic in fact refers to such a diverse grouping of uh, belief systems that some scholars have actually argued that it's not even accurate to talk about there being such a thing as gnosticism uh so 
a lot of the material I'm drawing from here is from Hans Jonas's book, The Gnostic Religion, The Coming of the Alien God and the Beginnings of Christianity. Uh, it should be said here that uh, although Jonas uh, revised the book several times, um, it is quite dated in some ways simply because Gnostic research um, is a very much a living archaeological historical field. We're still figuring it, we're still discovering new things. There's still great big breakthroughs that are probably waiting to happen and are happening now. Um, so don't take anything I'm saying here as particularly definitive, except in terms of sketching a very broad picture. Uh, nor am I going to spend too much time actually discussing the history of Gnosticism because it's complicated and a bit boring. There's a, uh, uh, there's a In Our Time episode about it though if you want to check that out. Okay. Um, but what was going on with the when Gnosticism came about was a synthesis of Eastern religion which in this particular context means Judaism, Zoroastrianism and the Babylonian religion as it existed in this period. And this period being around... 200, 150 BCE to 100, 200 CE, AD. Um, it's a synthesis of these Eastern religions with Greek philosophy mm. because the culture at the time in this part of the world is heavily Hellenized and even the Eastern schools and the Eastern religions are expressing themselves in Greek more than their own languages. There is actually an interesting historical moment that um, kind of kind of um, set the trajectory of the uncertainty of what was actually coming from the um, from the um, from the eastern side because the uh, the combination of these eastern ideas with um, with kind of Hellenic uh, ph philosophy uh, came with uh, Alexander of Macedon's conquest of the east um, mm. and basically he had a very he had a very interesting uh, agenda because like he was doing the whole kind of benign ruler thing which um, basically kind of taking playbook out of Cyrus the Great, <laughs> the, the great Persian king who had built up the uh, Persian Empire in the first place, and saying, like, right, like, we've got to... We're taking over, but we have to preserve the customs and honour the customs, but also build the customs of the conquered lands into our way of ruling an empire if it's going to have any kind of cohesion at all, which the Persians did very well, and he didn't do very well at all because it immediately split up as soon as he died between, and was... Um, pulled apart by his warring generals but he did make a conscious effort to sit down the persian philosophers with the greek philosophers and get them to talk um but there's an there's a story which might be apocryphal where he was um at a kind of banquet where this happened i think he got very drunk and commanded for like the the burning of persepolis <laughs> and um well we've and, all fucked yeah, up when we've been drunk yes yeah and in the process of that loads and loads of um of uh, tomes of uh, written down and properly theorised Persian philosophy just went up in flames. So what we have left of that is a kind of secondhand Hellenized version of it. Uh, so there are so many aspects of Zor Zoroastrianism that could, you know, could be much more theorised, but we can only we can only deal with what we have, which is actually very little. That's very interesting. That the um, we have this something similar, not not too similar, but a similar thing with Judaism is the fact that. Um, uh, knew of uh, there being such a thing as uh, sort of like the Greek Old Testament, with the, uh, the specifically the version of um, the Hebrew Scriptures that the early Christians were referring to and using when they were uh, writing their text was the Septuagint or Septuagint. I've never said the word. Oh, Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint. <laughs> I don't know. It means I don't know. It means from the seventy. But the uh, there was a, st a standard Greek version of um, the Hebrew Scriptures was 
written, and that's actually and the, that is the and it's not exactly it's not considered more authoritative than Hebrew, obviously, but that's that's sort of the standard version that's still used in um, the Eastern churches. Um, Anyway, uh, I know we said we weren't going to talk too much about the history of it, but but that's what what's that's what's happening with Gnosticism is developing. You have the more mystical ideas of the East, million different caveats there, combining with the more rational ideas of the West, million different caveats there. The Greeks had their own initiatory traditions as well, mm. and all that, and uh, a lot of which came from the East. <laughs> the um, so, but um, what I am going to do is I'm going to offer a few points which I think you can argue are these are the key components of the Gnostic worldview in all of its different manifestations. The world is hell. God is an alien. We are God. Ergo, we are aliens. And the only way out is the laser beam. So obviously, this thing is maybe a little bit of unpacking. Um, so first of all, the world is hell. For Gnostics, the world we inhabit is not our home. It isn't our proper uh, dwelling place. Some, some Gnostic texts actually refer to um, the world, the earth, as the inn or the resting place of our journey, basically. Um, going further with this, the world is in fact dark, deceptive, cold and alien to our true nature, with our true nature being equally alien to it. The Gnostic cosmology is often uh, really like mind-bogglingly complicated. The world we are trapped in is a realm controlled by great powerful celestial beings called Archons. And the different Gnostic schools uh, would disagree uh, about the nature and the number of the Archons. But what is in agreement is the fact that they, they, are, they are a dark force that we need to be liberated from. They are the gods of this earth. Mm. And in order to escape from hell and return to, our, to return to our true home, we need to know how to defeat and navigate our way past these great sort of like Lovecraftian dimensional entities that preside over the universe. And this is kind of, is, am I right in thinking this is what's thought of as a Manichaean type model of uh, philosophy or theology? There is disagreement, there's some disagreements about whether or not Manichaeism can accurately, can entirely accurately be described as a Gnostic worldview. Mm. Um, but, but the other way around, can, can this Gnostic worldview be described as Manichaean? To an extent. Uh, Manichaeism, it was one of the, um, it was to an extent it was a contender with Christianity of being the religion that was going to dominate late antiquity yeah, and uh, early modernity the it was the it was um a very dualistic religion uh, developed by a uh, by a prophet called manu hence mani Ma uh, no mani rather hence manichaeism who posited that there were two competing sp spiritual or divine quasi-divine forces one being the good creative uh, blessing force and the other a dark destructive force so the good things in the world are the product of this loving force and the evil things are the product of this uh, dark force like he said something like um, hold a scorpion in your hand and tell yourself that this is the product of a being that loves you mm -hmm. uh, Saint Augustine was a Manichaean before yeah. he converted to Christianity I mean that's crucial because a lot of that that element and also his kind of platonic element kind of both creep into his Christian writing 
which then you were monumentally influential in early Christianity. Yes, uh, more uh, especially uh, more so in the uh, Latin tradition. He's always had a very... I won't go into details about yeah. it, but he's had, like, the Eastern tradition is... D- uh, they're sniffy about Augustine for quite good reasons, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Anyway, um, the world is something we have become ensnared by. It is full of illusions and deceit. It is a product of a false deity called the Demiurge, which is a term borrowed from Plato's dialogue, uh, the Timaeus, in which he speculates about the origin of the world and posits an architect called the Demiurge. Demiurge literally meaning uh, handyman or craftsman. Mm. The Demiurge believes itself to be the origin of all things. It does believe that it is the creator, the Lord God. But it is either lying or it has become as trapped and deceived by its own works as we are. This is one of the things, there's a lot of variety in Gnostic thought, and with some holding that the Demiurge has just lied to us, it's a satanic force, and it's claiming to be the creator of all things, including our immortal souls. But it isn't. It just is this thing that made a trap for us. Though other Gnostic schools hold that the Demiurge is actually just, like it's actually just as broken and sick as we are it thinks it's the product of every it's the producer of everything because it doesn't have it itself no longer has the spiritual insight to understand that it is a fragment of the higher divinity um the demiurge was often also um specifically associated with the deity in the hebrew bible um the demiurge the archons and the dark hell world as such are all to be contrasted with this figure of um, which Jonas calls the alien god so this is what I mean by God as an alien, the true Godhead from which we came. And when I say from which we came, I mean our true selves, which for a Gnostic is the, is the soul, is the spirit. Actually, I'm conflating terms there in the Greek. Um, psy- uh, psyche and Numa are distinguished from one another. And I, we don't need to worry about that. Yeah, uh, angry emails from... Uh, <laughs> I, I do, though. I know they're different things. They may have different connotations to what they mean now. But our true self, our true spiritual self, our true immaterial self does not emerge from the demiurge. It emerges, it emerges from this profoundly, this profound alien god. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is completely and totally other from the world. Although, again, some varieties of Gnostic thought talk about kind of like an intermixing of darkness and light. But this, like I said, this Gnosticism isn't, doesn't refer to a single coherent worldview. It's more of a tendency in idea, in spiritual and religious ideas. Um, uh, so, but anyway, so like the broad picture is anyway, is that of the world is darkness and thus the true God is light. Uh, and this light is ultimately alien, other and transcendent. The alien God, however, has in its mercy made itself known to us with its messengers uh this is why there was a powerful christian gnosticism which considered uh jesus to be a spokesperson or uh for the true godhead who was not the god of the hebrew um, old testament or the hebrew script of the hebrew scriptures uh the church fathers like um, um, spent an enormous amount of effort combating Christian Gnosticism, interestingly. Uh, and in fact, up until, really up until the last century, virtually every single thing we knew about what the Gnostics believed came from the refutations written by um, church fathers like St. Irenaeus. None of the texts survived because Christianity, because mainstream Christianity, what eventually became Catholic and Orthodox Christianity, is, what, is the version that won. So we only had the texts from from the patristic fathers of to uh, try and build up an understanding of Gnosticism. But in the last century, there are these incredibly unlikely accidental archaeological discoveries where enormous cornucopiae of Gnostic texts were discovered 
uh, and the entire field changes because of this. And Jonas mentions in his introduction actually to this book that this had never happened before in an in like the field of archaeology where a single discovery completely transforms an entire um field like that. Uh so moving on, we are the aliens because for the Gnostics, as our true self is a fragment of the glorious radiant alien divinity just striving to return home we ourselves are thus alien to this world and i'm going to read an extract from jonas's book here actually because i think this is uh and this will help us uh, and uh this will help link back to the movie that we're nominally talking about Fingers crossed. <laughs> i promise it does all make sense it does make sense the alien is that which stems from elsewhere and does not belong here to those who do belong here, it is thus the strange, the unfamiliar, and incomprehensible. But their world, on its part, is just as incomprehensible to the alien that comes to dwell here, and like a foreign land where it is far from home. Then it suffers the lot of the stranger, who is lonely, unprotected, uncomprehended, and uncomprehending in a situation full of danger. Anguish and homesickness are part of the stranger's lot. The stranger, who does not know the ways of the foreign land, wanders about lost. If he learns its ways too well, he forgets that he is a stranger and gets lost in a different sense by succumbing to the lure of the alien world and becoming estranged from his own origin. And this is the situation that we, as God aliens, are in, in the Gnostic worldview. We are sparks of the divine light droplets from the divine ocean who have forgotten their true nature because we become ensnared by the transient pleasures of the world and we only discover this when it's too late for us ourselves to affect a change so we can still have this profound awareness of our otherness but we've forgotten because we've been come trapped in this cycle of death and rebirth. There's something kind of like Buddhist about this, obviously, because mm -hmm. that's what happens to the soul of Gnosticism. If it can't escape from the world, we're trapped here. We just keep going round and round the circle. So that's which is why we need this message, this voice from the outside to come in and remind us of who we really are. So this is what I mean by the way out is the laser beam. So the Gnostic... The, the origin of the word Gnosticism is from the Greek Gnosis. Uh, gnosis is one of the many Greek words for knowledge. I'd, I'd kill to be able to just fucking download ancient <laughs> Greek into my skull because it's such a rich conceptual language. Getting there, aren't you? <laughs> and in this context, uh, Gnosis refers to a kind of direct spiritual knowledge that cannot be arrived at through abstract philosophical reasoning. It's revelation. Uh, literally apocalypse in the true meaning of the word which means unveiling or revelation which is why the book of revelation is the apocalypse the revelation once one is struck with the gnosis one is able to break out of the chains of this world and return to the alien godhead in a sense attaining gnosis is to immediately and imminently attain unity with the transcendental divinity that lies outside of the world right now knowing the truth one is set free well, anyhow, or how do you want? Ad Astra. I beg your pardon? That's Latin. Latin? You must know that in England. 
Royal Air Force, their motto. Yes. Per ardua ad astra, through difficulties to the stars. Hmm. Hmm. So, and, I mean, just kind of a brief aside thinking about the movie again. Um, it's interesting that kind of we're going to be talking a lot about the technology that he harnesses and he implements, which is it's treated in a very strange way. There's that line from Rip Torn where he's talking about um, how he's been brought into um, to Newton's big project in some way because he's doing interesting things with uh, photography. Um, and it's not so much kind of the capturing, well, he talks about it in, in terms that are sort of reminiscent of when we were talking about, um, talking about the stone tape um, and has come up in other things, but the idea of like this energy transference, um, it, there's basically, there's kind of a blurring between um, technology and, um, and these spiritual ideas, which he seems to be affecting. And it's interesting the way we see actually kind of alien life trans um, presented in the film because it's it feels like he's not so much come from another world in a physical sense that he's kind of transcending between dimensions, um, which is you know a whole other a whole other branch of um, UFO law. Um, but but I mean that that is um, it's. I think uh, one of the things that I'm going to be talking more about Nick Rogue's uh, filmmaking later, but um, but he is creating this sense where he wants you to think in quasi-technological terms, quasi-mystical terms through the progress of this thing. That's why so much of the technology he actually comes out with is treated in quite vague terms. Um, because as, as you were saying earlier, like what, what does he actually give us? He gives us like... Um, it's a fancy Polaroid and a car phone is more or less all the tech that we actually see him do. Like it's in, like it's hint, like we know he's fabulously wealthy. I think he's like meant to be the richest man in the world or something. Mm. But And he's doing something, but we don't actually really see much of what it is he's really up to um, that much. It's all kind of like, it's hinted at. It's all the through implication. Mm. Um, anyway, so... This was when I found this out, when I figured this out, this was actually a weirdly mind-blowing moment for me, but um, Philip K. Dick, um, the great science fiction writer who gave us to Angel's Dream of Electric Sheep, among many, many, many other things. Who we also he, talked about in our hardware episode. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote um, a science and kind of a Gnostic science fiction uh, novel, it was kind of a trilogy called uh, Valis, uh, because Dick believed that he had um in kept received the received the gnosis essentially he had a mystical experience or an experience he interpreted mystically whereby he felt that he had been blasted with a laser beam is how he put it like a pink laser beam suddenly fired into him I mean, which just transmitted this bizarre spiritual knowledge into him Amphetamines are one hell of a drug. Mm -hmm. um, he went on to write uh, this novel, Valis, which was a fictionalization of these experiences he had. Like he said, that um, he had uh, extrasensory knowledge. He was aware that his son had a heart murmur, which is which had not been um, diagnosed. He took his uh, son to the doctor and said, "I think he's something wrong with his heart." And the doctor examined it, and he said, "Shit, there's actually something wrong here." Uh, so Dick says, anyway. Um, what really spun me out though when I figured when I found this out because I just threw this in there as a little aside because old Dick talks about this in his novel and then I started reading thinking about it a little bit more because it's been about 10 years since I read it and I remember there's something about a rock star being in a sci-fi movie in this book 
And it turns out that Philip K. Dick went to see The Man Who Fell to Earth when it came out. And he walked away from it and said to himself, well, clearly this is a Gnostic parable. And he then, when he wrote Vallis, he decided that he wanted to include in this novel a science fiction film made by a British rock star, which is used to communicate occult, spiritual, Gnostic ideas to the world at large. Shit, and there's that really... That was actually one of the most gripping moments of the novel because I read it about 10 years ago as well. And um, that bit where they're just kind of describing the film and they're describing... They're just, I think they're just in the car on the way home trying to figure out what the hell they've just seen. Because it isn't, it isn't the man who fell to earth. He doesn't describe a film of the same plot as that. What he took from it was more just this notion, this idea that could you do that with a film? Could you use a science fiction movie or even a science fiction novel as a vehicle to transmit the Gnosis. And he started to consider the possibility that the Gnosis had worked through him with his novels without him even realising that it had done, mm. uh, which is why his books are so strange and psychedelic. And there's a... I read a blog post on a website called, Bodhisa- uh, called Bowie Sattva, um, <laughs> which... Uh, this came from 2012, he wrote this, actually, and we will link to it in the mega thread that comes afterwards. Okay. I, can't, I can't remember the address of it right now, unfortunately. And he talks about this because this is kind of, and uh, that's where I kind of had that holy shit moment. This is real. This is real. Mm-hmm. And um, the discourse is real. The discourse is real. He also points out that uh, Philip K. That um, David Bowie was a big sci-fi fan himself, and his son, who changed his name from Zowie Bowie, uh, <laughs> and went on to make uh, such really uh, fun films as Moon and all that, um, said that like he used to read Philip K. Dick novels. So it's like there's no doubt that he's not read there's no doubt that he hasn't read Valis no that doesn't make sense is that double negative he's read Valis he's obviously he's read Valis which means he's his films have in some sense must be informed by the science fiction novel inspired by his dad's film it's um it's um a very strange loop but one of the things he points out in his blog post is the fact that in um the Morning of the Magicians, which we mentioned earlier, which is the book that brings together so many of these occult and ideas and presents them to the public in the in a condensed form that hadn't really been done before, speculates that there are initiates, there are superhumans among us who might be using popular culture to communicate these ideas to one another. And he suggests that might be one of the other places where Dick got this notion from. Hmm. And I mean, just kind of a bit bit of a side note, but kind of one of the um, one of the most interesting books to come out in the last few years that co- uh, covers a lot of these subjects, um, which I haven't read, but I've read a very good uh, <laughs> summary of it and uh, interview with the author in The Quietus, which we will link out to, uh, which is P- Peter Ga- Babergall's... I nearly said Peter Gabriel's. <laughs> Peter... Ba- I think... Oh shit, I'm just going to look up the title right now. <clears throat> yeah, so the book is called uh, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. And he talks <laughs> a lot about his um, early experiences of um, kind of getting into the occult and picking up a a big kind of like you know a tome of like you know the, the I think it's the Book of Solomon, uh, the Key of Solomon that he talks about picking up and reading it and being kind of left cold by it. Um, but well, then yeah, the, yeah, the Book of Solomon it's if, if, huge and dry. Yes, because if it's the uh, the less if it's the lesser Key of Solomon, well, that's just the big Book of Demons. Yeah, it's just like this is this demon. This is how you summon this demon. Mm. 
this is what this demon can do for you. And it's just that for hundreds of pages. But he still had that kind of yearning for this uh, kind of occult experience, which he later discovered through David Bowie, through rock and roll and things. And I think that's quite integral. Uh, you mentioned the... Um, the bit about the, the the Philip K. Dick connection, the fact that it's a rock star doing this. There is something uh, fundamentally um, occulty about this idea of performance, about um, of someone making a performance and you know enacting some sort of chaos magic to sort of shape reality around themselves. To cre- and, but not just to do that, but to to bring about this kind of high, heightened hallucinatory, uh, one might say Dionysiac <laughs> state. Um, which then leaves you open for a certain form of enlightenment, which is to come. And I think David Bowie had, he had the raw materials for it um, through what he'd done with Ziggy Stardust of creating this kind of hyper real entity, uh, which then left a perfect opening to bring in an occult message. And I think he kind of, he he had a shared vision there with, um, with Nicholas Rogue, which I also want to, which I'm saving for like the last bit of the episode because we are <laughs> going to do a proper tribute to Nicholas Rogue with this in the way that we abjectly failed to. <laughs> well, not abjectly, but like I didn't think we nearly did enough justice to Nicholas Rogue in our Don't Look Now episode. Yeah, I think we've said before about our second episode is actually our least favourite one, our Don't Look Now episode. We also like use language which is ableist in that when we're yeah. talking about the um, the murderer at the end, which yeah. we're really, really sorry about. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't listen to it. It's really bad. Oh, no, listen to it. I mean, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's necessary history we if we have to talk about like bowie's fascism we have to talk about that episode we did <laughs> um moving on moving on swiftly flirtation uh, with the imagery of fascism <laughs> in a postmodern sense go on anyway back to the movie back to the movie uh so bowie's character here he's not a mesianic figure i think that should be emphasized rather i see it more that um thomas jerome newton is he is illustrating the gnostic fall the the fall of the soul in gnosticism as he becomes ensnared with the world because the different gnosticisms offer different accounts about how we become trapped here like some suggesting there was curiosity or lust or deception that split us off from uh the divine pleroma and trapped us here and what we're told is that uh Bowie is here because he needs to get Ward to take it back to his home world. But this is really not the central feature of the movie at all. It's mentioned a couple of times in passing. And it's basically just the MacGuffin for why he's here. It's not really... It's it's, it's nominally the motive why he's there, but it's not really anything uh, like that. What's more interesting is that we see an alien entity, which is of superior intelligence and ability to us, come into the world and becomes seduced by it in its falsehoods. He becomes an alcoholic, he becomes obsessed with television and just raw sensuality, almost. And there's something very cold about it somehow, like it's this um, this superficial thing that he has mistaken for truth, almost, or something mistaken as being the important thing, and has forgotten why he was here in the first place. I um I think in my notes somewhere I made a slightly um flippant comment about um how Elon Musk is sort of a shit version of Thomas <laughs> Jerome Newton as in he's um made himself this great captain of industry he's come from another land in this case being South Africa and not that we're suggesting that South Africa is the divine pleroma but <laughs> no but um but he's like you know he's he's um 
he's um, harvesting all this kind of he's he's doing primitive accumulation to to use Marx's term <laughs> to um, to create his put himself as this central figure and try and achieve something. He wants to take us into space, but he's um, he's dating Grimes and uh, she's just having to like pull him off the computer so he doesn't make a fool of himself on Twitter because he's on acid and going on Joe Rogan and smoking a doob. Uh, <laughs> um, we don't like him. <laughs> no. Either of them, in fact. Yeah. I I was kind of into Grimes back in Twitter. Oh, not Grimes, Joe Rogan. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> Grimes yeah. is okay. Come on the show. <laughs> Elon must come on the show and give us your money. But um, uh, there's another kind of interesting, another interesting kind of real life um, Bowie, Bowie, Thomas Jerome Newton crossover here, which I think has certain um, evocations of this alien status. In that, at this moment in time. Um, I mentioned earlier that he'd moved to Berlin to kick the cocaine habit. That didn't go all too well. Really? Although, apparently, Nicholas Rogue's account, he does say that he was actually completely clean for the, you know, for the, um, for the shooting of uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. And, you know, he, um, perhaps those little green wheels were following him because there are other accounts that say he really wasn't. Um, but the, the fact that he, like, he took so much cocaine, which, of course, um, shuts down certain, it basically makes you not want to eat. And so he was this strange kind of ethereal malnourished entity that had been so um, so distanced from reality by uh, these uh, this drug addiction that he had kind of made himself into a almost an ethereal figure who could not who couldn't take or consume or um, process human food. So was living on a simple manner like diet of cocaine, peppers and milk. And also, um, I think uh, there is an account that he was um, that filming was uh, slowed up for several days because he drank rotten milk, which is because uh, it was shot in New Mexico, where it's very, very hot. Um, <laughs> the milk, I'm afraid, has started to rot. <laughs> but there's there's also kind of another kind of parallel with Bowie chiming with the new um, with the Berlin years, which is the fact that we see we see um, Thomas Jerome Newton doing a very strange thing where he. Um, he kind of leaves the city after he's started. He's set the he's set the ball rolling on his company. He's making the money. He's got the patents and stuff. And so he's just like, right, I'm just gonna go out. I think he's going to kind of where he crashed. Yes, because he lands yeah, in um, New Mexico. In New Mexico, and he says very explicitly, "I'm going back to New Mexico." But what he does there is um, like um, basically as a strange kind of ersatz version of working class American life. He's just sitting in a room, um, starting to get into booze, uh, smoking, um, living with uh, the charming hotel lady, uh, Mary Lou, who's called Mary Lou, which is the most kind of archetypal Midwest American name. We are dealing with archetypal characters yeah. here, yes. And and he's kind of, he's, he's trying to be normal, but really not, because he's living a, a weird, completely unreal version of a loose conception of normal life. And this is effectively what Bowie was doing at the time because when he moved to Berlin he wanted to step down from the megastar status a little bit and so he started putting on very very normal clothes he put on some weight he started wearing a flat cap and growing facial hair and stuff and um and just going around incognito eating kebabs and visiting museums and occasionally going over into the eastern Bloc. and um and it's yeah it's something very very strange in how that's happening um but but yeah that's um that's something interesting there so <laughs> <laughs> yes it is mm. um 
going back to the film a little bit, one of the other things that we notice is that, of course, when he tries to leave, he finds that he can't. He becomes, he, he's kind of just grabbed by these shadowy forces and it's not ever really made clear who the people are that's why i described this vaguely as some kind of government corporate conspiracy it's just almost just like the um again these archetypal emblems of state power mm. and corporate power just grab him and take him away and they see and the hotel they seal him in again like the prison the rubber is um it's luxurious he gets everything he wants he gets like mary lou there he gets drink he can have sex and eat and it is kind of, it's an eerie parallel to uh, the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes. Which yes. Um, is kind of, I think is more explicit in the book or short story and then the book um, the, uh, by Arthur C. Clarke, where they, they just, they pretty much state like, that he's in a human zoo. He's being kept there by aliens and given everything he wants to stay happy and live a kind of a preserved shadow of a human life. Um, by this great, uh, one might say, archon-like entity. But the film, I mean, I don't consider the books as having any, um, actually, any interpretive power when it comes to the film of 2001. That's something we need to do. Um, because <laughs> it, cause they are just so distinctly separate from it. Uh, and that... Um, no, it's not. No, it's not an alien zoo. It's some. It's, it's more of a transformative space where it's almost like his his last his his years have as a human have to be burnt up before he can continue to transcend into something radically other th- from what he is. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> but that's not what happens in this film. No. Uh, in fact, this is a prison. He's trapped. He is trapped here, and they keep on performing experiments on him and testing him. It's a very horrible moment because one of the things that, um, because like we've already said, he's in disguise and part of his disguise are contact lenses to cover his alien eyes. And they want to take an x-ray photograph of his eyes. And he wants to remove his um, contact lenses but because he's just a shaking, literally just a shaking drunk, he can't do it. So they say, oh, we won't bother with this. And he's begging them not to. And they take an x-ray photograph of his eyes. And he says, what you've done here is burnt these lenses onto my eyes. I will never be able to take them off now. And this is the moment where his entrapment here is the most obvious and concrete and profound. That, no, his disguise is now, his mask is sealed onto him now. He can't get rid of it. He is us now ultimately that's also the um one of the things they say in that scene is the fact that um they take an x-ray of his eyes and he says and he says no i'll be blinded i'll be and they say no this is that's not true you can't um, you can't see an x-ray. you can't see an x-ray and, and he can and he sees so much of it that he's blinded in that process as well mm. so yeah that, that that's fixing his human state and um possibly if we want to talk in Freudian terms of a type of castration, but I know that's I'd, oh I'd say that yeah yeah okay okay yeah uh, I'm gonna stick with that yeah in um and this and as well as this I think it should like when he's talking to Rip Torn about why he picked this world as the place to come to he said because we saw it on television we yeah. saw the water here and something that you see a lot in this film is just David Bowie watching like huge banks of television and I, I'm wondering if that's where that trope comes from the sign of genius being watching loads of tele, tellies at the same time like mm. Ozymandias and Watchmen yeah. and but it is very much that he's kind of like because obviously part of it is that he can process all of it because he's superhuman because he's not human but there's also this notion that he's he what he saw was an illusion he saw telly telly's not real 
Mm. And he thinks it is. And that's why he came here. And that's part of the trap he builds for himself, along with, again, especially um, alcohol and sex. These are the things that bind him here and make him forget why he's here. Wouldn't everyone? Last night I was watching television. I saw these uh, ex-astronauts. Some of them are basket cases now. Strange thing about television is that it doesn't tell you everything. It shows you everything about life on Earth. Mysteries remain. Perhaps it's in the nature of television. Just waves in space. Do you trust me, Dr. Price? I think so. That's not good enough. There's an interesting uh, thing, which I was going to save to later, but I'm going to actually say now. Um, there's a very good article, which I'm going to link to, I think it's from the BFI website, where uh, I think his name is Tony Simmons, Tom something Simmons. Uh, he was the cinematographer who worked on The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, working, and it was, a, it was a, he pretty much set himself up and said like, I'm working with Nicholas Rogue. I, a lot of people have their own style, but I just do what Nicholas Rogue says because Nicholas <laughs> Rogue also as, as we mentioned in the Don't Look Now episode was himself a cinematographer for many years before he uh, stepped up to director and um, and has something of a very interesting legacy in his cinematography including the Roger Corman uh, Mask of the Red Death which is something we're going to have to cover I'm sure fantastic film something, uh, sorry can I mention something that um, something that should be emphasised actually the reason why I keep on talking about how he's seduced by the pleasures of the world is that Gnost the Gnostic schools they had two very distinct and contradictory relationships with worldly pleasures in that on the one hand because they do consider them part of the trap on the one hand, you had very ascetic schools of Gnosticism, which survived into medieval times. You had the the, the medieval Cathars were this very ascetic kind of Gnostic, this notion that we can't have sex, we can't eat for pleasure, because that's how we're trapped here. Mm. We have to go beyond these things in order to get out of this. Gotta get that sweet cocaine. <laughs> but on the other hand, on the other hand, you had a schools of Gnosticism that took the opposite measure that are of the notion that the trap, one of the traps is morality and law, which is why they have so much hostility towards um, traditional Judaism. Uh, and so true liberty from the world is a kind of an indulgent indifference almost. So you also had Gnostics that were very, very open to um, sexual practices that would have been considered unacceptable in their own time and arguably ours as well because this wasn't we, we had when we talk about sexual liberation we do we do automatically assume the good kind but it can also mean and very well might have done because one of their the beliefs of some of these schools was you have to experience every sin so there's also like this would have been yeah. awful things as well this would have been killing people and raping people as well because they're not you understand none of this matters but also some of this idea may have been an extrapolation done as a form of propaganda by people who were really trying to justify why they massacred the Cathars at Monseigneur. Um, <laughs> um, this is, uh, though that was much, that, wasn't, that was later than the oh, Gnostic okay. reputations by about a thousand years. Oh, uh, okay. Well, uh, but I mean... No, the Cathars were in France, we're I talking know, about... I know, but, 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 yeah. But, wait, did I, did I conflate Manichaeans with the Cathars? Who knows? Lucy, but did you any... just conflate Manichaeans with the Cathars? I'm sorry. <laughs> the, but, um... But, 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 but um, just going, just 
as a side note, we were talking about Philip K. Dick earlier, who was influenced by Jakob Burma and Bur- um, who we talked about in the Harper episode with the Aurora <laughs> and things. He, uh, Philip K. Dick's Valis is kind of a weird retelling of uh, Jakob Burma's own weird Gnostic experience, which was apparently totally sui generis. Um, but um, but uh, Burma had his own kind of um, theological mystical following in England, where it endured a lot longer than it did in Germany. And one of the things spread about his uh, followers there, who were um, Samuel Samuel something, who wrote a very, very bad poem that Dryden mocked him relentlessly about. But basically, Pordage, Samuel Pordage. Um, I think his son was involved as well. But yeah, that he they had a bit of a kind of Anabaptist energy about them where um, where they kind of, they had that situation of having already been saved. Um, and so there was a propagandistic extrapolation of that in things like the big book Gangrena, um, where they said, oh yeah, because they, they have this idea, um, they're trying to explore every human experience and that nothing is, um, nothing is off limits to them. Hence, they're a bunch of sinners and we need to hunt them down. <laughs> this is interesting because this was the accusation that's made against the early church as well, that by the uh, by the Romans especially, because, and as well as that by the um, traditional Jewish authorities as well, because the early church did not regard itself as bound by the ritual laws of Torah anymore. Yeah. And because the language of the church talks about the um, the love feast of the Lord and it talks about how we are brothers and sisters of the, in the Lord and the fact that as well that the early church practiced it was esoteric um good grief the early church was esoteric non-christians couldn't attend couldn't attend the eucharist not, rather than just not communicate it and they wouldn't communicate all of their beliefs to outsiders or to christians who they didn't think were sufficiently spiritually enlightened and so on this led to accusations that well, well the love feast is clearly an orgy they are committing incest because they are brothers and sisters we do and 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 of course this these are um so thank you for pointing this out lucy because this is a good corrective to what i've been saying because these are the accusations that the people in power always make to the new thing coming up and what you see when Christianity becomes the dominant religion in Rome and in Europe is the Jews are the ones who are eating children and uh, having blood orgies and so on mm. and and, the, and these are man, these are these are of turfdom right oh man yeah they, these are tropes that continue to exist as well whenever these things happen um in America in like uh, 19th century America, but there was a ton of anti-Catholic sentiment. There were stories going around that monasteries were filled with um, women who'd been kidnapped. But yeah, there'd be these stories of like um, brave Protestants going to free these nuns who as soon as they were like left of own devices would return to their monastery. Because no, this is where we live. Why would you liberate us from our house? We would <laughs> like to go back, please. Um, these are, uh, yeah, so, but, so a lot of, I mean, this actually goes back to what I um, already said about how for a very long time, everything we knew about Gnosticism was refutations of Gnosticism that aren't necessarily accurate representations of Gnostic views because St. Irenaeus and all that, he wants people to be the true faith. And now maybe he does say, does it really, really matter if they think the Gnostics are rapists is this brings them back to the true religion? Does that matter too much? Can we talk about David Bowie? <laughs> yes. We yes, need to get out of uh, Theology Corner with with Father Sean. All uh, right, let's, let's I, uh, talk about station yeah, to station. I mean, I just wanted to just have that, that side point I was talking about um, on the BFI article about uh, Nicholas Rogue's cinematographer who worked on this picture. One of the things that he he um, attributes to Nicholas Rogue's innovation was this ability to 
present America as how it would look to an outsider. And so we get the the weird sort of archetypal version of working class American life. Um, and we get that bit where there's that weird f- blending scene where they're going through the countryside and he just sees the family of aliens walking through. Um, and then that fades into an impressionist painting. And that's that's pure rogue, as in that's it's it takes so much unpicking as to what that means. But it's like here's this fictional fictionalized version of America that we get through that a lot of what we got through paintings early on. People with people like uh, Thomas Kincaid, well Thomas Kincaid was later, but Norman Rockwell I think is uh, held up as this great kind of creator of the myth of America. Um, but one of the things he he's essentially doing, even though he's presenting aliens here, the way we see them is pretty much an archetypal nuclear family unit which is very Mm. very close to home which is very 1950s which is very american um and so yeah we get we've got we've got kind of multiple levels of alienation encoded into the very filming of uh, the man who fell to earth um starring david bowie directed by nicholas rogue But yeah, so, and station to station, huh? Yeah, let's go back to talking about David Bowie, who you might know recorded a few albums. Yeah. Um, so we've already established that Bowie was into a cult shit with Hunky Dory and all mm. that. Um, but there's a lot of that is very, very obviously prevalent in station to station. Mm-hmm. And station to station as well. It's very obvious that he wants to draw a connection between this film and station to station because the album cover is a still from the movie. Yes. Um, also, um, another still from the movie figures on the cover of the Low album, which is the first of the Berlin trilogy. Oh, okay. Yes. But um, uh, but it's like that's him in profile, and in the film he's actually standing by a lake, but they've put it on just a blank, I think brown brownish black background. Um, but yeah, but it's it's very much like this is. This is indicative of what he's doing now, at this very moment, as both the musician, as the performer, as the entity of David Bowie. Mm-hmm. I think that um, Station to Station is, um, in some ways, I think I think it uh, arguably reinforces a lot of what I, um, I've been saying about what's actually going on in this film, that it is a parable about the fall of the soul into the trap of the world. So on the back of um, the cover of Station to Station, we see Bowie in, his, in persona as the thin white duke drawing uh, the Kabbalistic tree of life, uh, which is a very important symbol in uh, esoteric Judaism in the Kabbalah. And the Tree of Life, it's a it's a diagram that, among many other things, because it's kind of like endlessly interpretable, because it's and has so much like depth to what it's conveying. That, um, but one of the um, primary interpretations of it is that it demonstrates the relationship between the God and between between the soul and of God, uh, as well as the process of creation itself, and. This is the bit in the episode where I, where we mention, as we always mention, last podcast on the left, mm-hmm. and uh, they did a really good episode, a really fun episode about Bowie and the occult, which you should listen to, and uh, some of the points that we're talking about here you'll hear repeated in that. And um, But they get something wrong in that, because there's a line in Station to Station where Bowie sings one magical movement from Kether to Malchus, which they interpret as referring to Bowie's attempt to 
uh, magically break out of this world and ascend to the godhead in one magical movement. Mm -hmm. But if you actually look at the diagram, though, Ketha is the top of the tree. It literally means crown. And Ketha is the godhead most purely manifest. And beyond Ketha, there is only the incomprehensible divinity unmanifest, just the boundless light of uh, Ein Sof Hour. But Malkuth is the bottom of the tree, which means foundation or kingdom. And it refers to the actual world that we're in. It refers to the creation that of the, of the material world. And referring to a magical movement from Ketha to Malkuth does not imply ascension. It implies a fall. It implies a rapid descent from, again, the divine pleroma into the trap of the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, Can I um, interrupt you for a moment? But if we're talking about uh, symbolism, did you get a chance to check out the poster for The Man Who Fell to Earth? Because uh, I'm, I'm curious not... to know your thoughts on this. What I'm looking at now, listener, is an upside-down triangle with a point pointing downwards. Uh... There's a circle. There's a circle and a triangle. Look Possibly at it, Possibly creating my circle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, do just look at a picture of it. Pause on this. Pause this podcast to have a look at a picture. That's. Um, I'm not going to try and like interpret that, but that's spooky, isn't it? Yeah. Also, is that the same font yeah, that someone... Iron Maiden uses? Okay, so the picture I've called up on Google Images is from a Reddit thread where someone has pointed out. Yes, the the poster for the man who fell to earth appears to use the Iron Maiden font, and. Um, I'm not sure when Iron Maiden started using that font. I wish Nick were here. Just um, <laughs> but that's quite... That's quite something. <laughs> An interesting synchronicity is that after we record, this evening we're planning to watch Bruce Dickinson's movie about Alistair Crowley, Chemical Wedding. Chemical Wedding is one of my favourite films and you ought to watch it, listener. It's brilliant. It's very good. Yes. Um, but, yeah. Just move on, should we move on to yeah, technology, technology and nuclear paranoia? Okay. So, um, so kind of edging cautiously away from uh, the overtly occult and Gnostic for a moment, rapidly possibly to descend back into that moment is um, is and and bring that bring it really into the sphere of a lot of what has um, has has uh, dictated the direction of Weird Signal for some time, which is the the Cold War, specifically the end of the Cold War, but also the duration of the Cold War and what the Cold War meant for humanity and the universe. And I think one of the things that has to be thought about in terms of this film, uh, which I think I'm going to be... I think I, um, I'm going to be taking kind of a speculative stance on this, which I think is what one must often do when identifying the work of Nicholas Rogue, um, is to, um, to look at the kind of... at what the nuclear... The, the presence of nuclear war is in this film because it is kind of kept in the background. It's sort of hushed up, but I think it does definitely creep in in a number of ways. I mean, creep by creeping, I mean, it starts with Holst's um, Mars Overture um, <laughs> and has images of the spaceship descending to Earth, which are frankly incredibly uh, evocative of a nuclear bomb descending. Uh, although, you know, this is... This is something. This is something strange, but um, this is something I want to pick up in a moment as well. Um, but 
there's um there's that discussion um that i'm also going to talk about in a moment where uh, they go inside the spaceship thing he's building and Riptorn's first reaction is, are you making a weapon? Uh, to which he responds quite um, quite forcibly, no, why would you? And is visibly uncomfortable at the implication that he could be making a weapon. Mm. Um, and, um, but, you know, that that's there as well. And it does look kind of nuclear. <laughs> you know, it really does. Um, it looks, well, it, honestly, when I saw it, I thought it looked like a... a a load of warheads all pointed at a central yeah. point. And, and the fact that Bowie's stepping into that and walking around it looking like this kind of gleaming weird figure um, is, is, is something, it's just a very, very compelling image. Um, but one of the other things is um, the fact that it's where it's set, which is New Mexico. Um, set in a number of, or, you know, filmed in a number of locations, one of which was White Sands, New Mexico. And um, for fans of Bowie, and I'm sure fans of this podcast, that should set some very, very Lynchian bells ringing right at this very moment. Because if you, if you have had the the pleasure and the, um, frankly, exhilarating but also painful experience of watching all of Twin Peaks season three, uh, one of the the key thematic and spiritual moments of that series is is it episode eight? Eight. Episode eight which is entirely, almost entirely dedicated to this protracted scene set in White Sands, New Mexico, of, um, of a nuclear bomb exploding in, in, well, in, in incredible slow motion and zooming to the heart of this, this uh, unfolding chaos. The core what, of nuclear chaos, yes. Azathoth himself. Well, yep, yep, everything is Azathoth. Um, <laughs> While playing over it is this incredibly bracing piece of music entitled Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima. I might have the title wrong. Jesus. But yeah. And, and, and there is a good, a very good article uh, from a blog called We Are the Mutants, which picks up on what I think was written just very quickly in response to this episode um, that identifies, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of critical discourse surrounding this as being the thematic heart of Twin Peaks the 1950s uh it it, it uh, brings up this quote um which is that um the 1950s have always been america's haunted house because that's where we something we touched on briefly i think in our episode on jacob's ladder the idea that the 1950s was the the peak moment of the american dream in all its uh syntactical shallowness that it evokes. And it's satanic glory. It's satanic yes. glory because it's when when the kind of form of hyper normal American reality, the American century, was was uh, formalized and um, and television did its own very important role in doing that. But there was so much dark, strange, unknowable, unfamiliar shit going on in total juxtaposition to the um, to the hyper familiar ideas of um, suburban, rural, um, working class or middle class American life. And that is something that that Twin Peaks plays with to such an extent that it has made it part of its mythology. And that's why, you know, we see uh, there are different interpretations of why this is, but we see Laura Palmer and the killer Bob emerging out of that same horrific explosion and um and yeah and so lots to unpack there but um but this should all come screaming back to earth 
in uh in the, in the moment when you realize that one of the key figures largely absent from series three although eerily present as a specter in series three of twin peaks is uh agent philip jeffries of the fbi played by david bowie mm-hmm. and i think there is a definite tie in there um and so and so this is i mean if we want to think about all this kind of uh, how how this um, intense Gnostic experience and feeling of like unknowable knowledge that we talked about earlier in the episode feels, I think watching that episode is that and knowing Bowie has some sort of spiritual, ethereal, tangential connection to all of these things is intensely there. It's intensely present. Um, but then... Um, and also, a couple of side notes. I think there's some definite um, Bowie shout-outs that happen elsewhere in Season 3 of Twin Peaks, not least of which is the fact that... Um, well, they make... Um, they have that bit um, where Coop is trying to escape from the Black Lodge, and he ends up in a tall room overlooking the ocean. And one of the, one of the most... Um, one of the most striking lines in Bowie's Station to Station is here am I flashing no colour tall as the room overlooking the ocean I don't think this is a uh, a thing especially because he's in a room actually no that's, that scene is slightly coloured but there is later when he's outside yeah. well, I, there's actually something very specific I want to say when he's outside the room that's uh-huh. on the balcony the ocean is mauve and he's coloured mauve by the light from it and although I this is not something I understand because I have not studied it. Kenneth Grant's Lovecraftian philemic occult system puts an enormous amount of emphasis on the idea that what happens in the process of occult initiation is you are able to exit this reality and enter another one, which he called the Mauve Zone. Oh. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it like that because I I don't want to speculate further on it because I honestly don't understand it. But, but have you ever tried to read a Kenneth Grant book? It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Although uh, you should read The Dark Lord by uh, what's his name? Peter Lavender, which Peter is a, Lavender, ver- which... a very accessible intro to uh, Grantian what's, occultism. It's the most accessible I think you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, bringing this back to, well, we talked about the the. Um, the juxtaposition between the um, the ethereal, the unfamiliar, and the hyperfamiliar. Um, television is this key thing. Television and communicative media are a thing that runs through that episode of Twin Peaks. David Lynch makes extremely good use of those scenes in black and white because he's evoking. He's he. There is no technical reason why the scenes he shoots in black and white need to be black and white, other than to evoke the fact that this is happening in the past. But also a past that um, a past that is frozen and made unreal through the medium of television. And that quote I, I brought up earlier, uh, which is quoted in "We Are the Mutants," was taken from an article actually in Esquire, where they're talking about <laughs> I believe it's a show called Smallville, where um, and there is that the Superman thing. I know it's um, it's a story. Oh, no, no. no. Yeah, it was in Esquire. It's an article which I'm going to link to called Culture, Why Frank Capra in Hell, Why the Frank Capra in Hell Award Goes to dot dot dot, which has some very good stuff about invasion. Pleasantville is the show. Pleasantville is about going back in time to a a kind of static version of 1950s America that's frozen in reality by television and some people from the real world cross over into it. Um, But I think I think David Lynch was possibly taking some cues from that during the black and white scenes of um, 
well, the, the, the White Sands a couple of years later with the extremely distressing bits with the woodsmen crushing the skulls and reading poetry into the radio, oh. a poetry that kills people. Um, go least, see that episode. A lethal poetry. Yeah, basically, I don't think we've spoiled it because this will make absolutely no sense. You'll make less sense when you watch it, if yes. anything. Um, but but there is there is a definite current of this element of hypermedia running through it. And this is obviously something that we've brought into, um, into the discourse by talking about how um, Nicholas Rogue's treatment of media is crossing a boundary between occult thought and Gnostic thought and technological thought and politics, which is the world in which... Um, in which don't um in which the man who failed to earth finds itself in but also the world it depicted and so it's very useful to think about how technology is presented in this context and um so some of the i mean i, I mentioned earlier elon musk and his capacity for um for <laughs> primitive accumulation the fact that he's like co-opting all these industries and bringing it in this strange acid fried I'm, I'm doing too much justice to Elon Musk here, but bringing it together in this weird, one might say, um, who was that guy who um, helped Alistair Crowley with all the nuclear science stuff? God, I don't know. Do you mean Jack Parsons? Jack Parsons. He's he's like a, as well as being a shit version of Thomas Newton, he's a shit version of Jack Parsons. <laughs> that he's kind of, he's on acid doing some like, God knows what, um, <laughs> bringing these ideas together and trying to do something um, to the detriment of us all, ultimately, mm. and certainly to his staff. But um, but you know that that is something that is something to think about because this this way that the economy works, this um, primitive accumulation, he's by using his alien brilliance, he's able to shape the economy in his own image, in almost in the way that you know, the super millionaires like uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are doing now. Well, I which... think Be- Bezos is the first centre billionaire. He's worth over $100 billion. No one... Jesus. He's the, the wealthiest man in modern history. Yeah. Um... Not, not not even... Not now, just in mm. modern history, no yeah, one has generally. been as wealthy as <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, and then... Basically, this is kind of... This is resonant in the 1950s sense because one of the things that we brought up in the hardware episode is that... He's, um, is this idea of neo-capitalism, specifically capitalism that has seeped so deep into society that is inextricably linked to government and social programming and the, just the makeup of society itself. And he's able to um, resist these forces of um, the military-industrial complex to make something... Or He's able to resist it for a time, to resist the military-industrial complex for so long as to um, make this very personal project but then it's taken out of his hands by shadowy forces who I think are the resurgent military industrial complex who hold most of the cards uh, in terms of um, in terms of hard power that so, they're able to take out of his hands. So are we saying that the military industrial complex is the archons? Yeah. Good. Okay, yeah. And also, also, just uh, if we want to bring a bit of Derrida into this, there's that fantastic line. I'm actually just going to quote it because I've got it copied here. Um, when he's trying to justify the takeover, he says, uh, the problem with this corporation is that it is uh, technologically overstimulated and the economic trouble stems from the, that fact. Then we must go further. They have they have to take the wider view. What kind of measure would you say is appropriate? Well, we're flexible, something uh, elastic. But remember, we're not the mafia. 
this isn't an archaic Italian joke. We're determining the social ecology. This is modern America, and we're going to keep it that way. Um, political ecology is um, is a very, very loaded term. I think. I think. I don't think we're going to answer this here, but I think. I think it's safe to say that there's some very, very bizarre shit happening in this film, and I think <laughs> it um, blends with a kind of um, post-structural analysis of oh, not even post-structural, just Marxist. Marxist analysis of how the economy works, merging with a um, analysis of how um, of how Gnosticism works, and one of the things actually I was going to bring up later, but I think is 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 calling for it now, is Bowie in Station to Station talks about the European canon is here. What is he making reference to? It is to the Pali canon of Tibetan Buddhism. So he's kind of because it's too late to be grateful, it's too late to be hateful, it's too late to be late again. He's, um, this moment, this beautiful coked up moment here in a Berlin apartment where the European canon is arising. I think what he's evoking, as much as he's evoking this kind of Gnostic parallel or this occultist idea, he is evoking a sense of Russian cosmism, uh, where it was the blending of kind of Western philosophy and Eastern ideas to create some sort of new universal understanding, which is a very very strange and loose and sort of flaky idea which can be interpreted in a lot of ways that came from the Soviet Union but I think this is what we're seeing is that kind of burning core of where all these ideas meet and I, I don't think anyone other than the director Nicholas Rogue could have achieved this so or, or David Bowie well yes yeah uh, good yeah, I don't think I have anything I can say in possible response to okay. that. That's brilliant. Yes. Okay. Uh, oh, but I've got other stuff to say. <laughs> um, well, I still need to talk. Basically, stepping a bit away from that. So we talk. We're talking about things that are transcending technology. But what about the power that's inherent in technology itself to transcend these things or to transcend the human realm into its own technological equivalent of what these economic or mystical forces are, or human forces are doing? Um, where we step into the realms of Marshall McLuhan and by extension David Cronenberg if you'll think back to our episode on Shivers um, we we are getting somewhere very very postmodern and very cyberpunk in terms of how the power of the media is it's one could argue that this is a parable of technology not saying that it's merging a Gnostic understanding and expressing it through technology so much as it's technology ascending to such giddying heights of power and elaborateness that is able to mirror a reality of what these old Gnostic scholars were only able to conceive of in loose mystical terms. And um, and what we see coming out of that is something quite Freudian, because we have that, that magnificent scene with the gun where they um, he's about to shoot her, and then he doesn't shoot her, he's shooting blanks. But it's this libidinal merging with the death drive that uh, spurs that sexual encounter which is done in classic Nick Rogue style of um, extremely ethereal and stylized but also quite explicit <laughs> that's the bit where you get to see David Bowie's balls yeah I mean did he have, I mean that's the thing I was I don't think you see his uh, his junk and his face in the same shot but at the same time it's difficult to replicate <laughs> the the sheer emaciation <laughs> of Bowie at that time and I, I I don't think he would have been shy about doing that um 
You but, see Riptorn's junk in this as well. I mean, Riptorn's a very interesting man in and of himself. <laughs> One of the reasons I actually wanted to um, talk about this episode was the fact that I spent a very strange morning at work one day watching the Riptorn Norman Mailer fight, where <laughs> Riptorn it was a part of a, a film, and the cameraman just kept shooting while everyone had gone to gone to like take a break, but they just kept the cameras on Riptorn. I don't know. I think he's had some of his own experiences and stuff but he had a hammer and he was a he decided somehow he justified it in his head that it was coherent with the subject of the film that they were shooting that he had to go and hit norman mailer with a hammer (laughs) and this really really like clumsy unpleasant and brutal fight occurs oddly homoerotic i have chosen oddly homoerotic because he refers to him as like I must kill daddy and by or something like I must kill daddy and daddy is Norman Mailer so I must kill Norman Mailer. <laughs> I've not seen the film it's taken from maybe we need to do an episode on this but go watch they it. Just it's, like it just wrestle keep, in the field. Yeah, and it keeps going and that's that bit where Norman Mailer like bites his ear and says if you don't drop the hammer I'm going to bite your ear off in a way that's kind of almost you could imagine sort of Norse gods doing this. We're getting way off topic but one thing I did also want to bring in before we um before we get back to um, whatever the hell we have scheduled, scripted, is um, it's the fact that um, there's also another tie-in with the album Station to Station with this idea of hypermedia and transcending your pers- your human body by taking in all of the media that's being blasted at you every second in the way that Bowie does, is the fact that a later contribution to that album, which is which has been critically identified as something of a a bit of a weird shift tonally because it's this sort of poppy song um, called TVC15, um, which was supposedly inspired by a moment that they had in their, like Iggy Pop and, and David Bowie had in their flat, where they were so fucked that they thought some sort of thing was coming out of the television to devour them. And, and I think it was, were, he was, was going to eat Iggy Pop's girlfriend. That was it. Specifically, yeah. yeah. And that they dubbed the TVC15. So there's this really jaunty song about some horrific, psychedelic, proto-Cronenberg shit going on. Um, one thing I did want to talk about, which is uh, interesting, though, like, we want to talk about, um, move on to Nick Rogue in a moment, but one point I did want to make is the fact that he... Um, we haven't really talked about Christianity all that much. We've talked about everything that kind of leads up to and detracts from it. <laughs> um, but they do actually go to a church. Uh, and it seems to be a bit of a strange new world church. Um, and there's that line that um, that they bring up. Uh, that Mary Lou actually says that she's trying to persuade Bowie to go to church. And he's for some reason saying, oh, I can't go to church. As perhaps like a sort of Damien-like omen call out. <laughs> Who knows? I don't. Actually, yeah, that was out at this time. And... At this moment, I'm going to call... Sean has detracted from me uh, already on this, but I'm going to call it an unusual priest klaxon. I think this is a weird church. Um, Pause for unusual priest klaxon. I, however, do not believe this is a weird church. I think it's very, very standard American evangelical gospel choir kind of place. Which is often a bit weird. Oh yeah, it is, but it's not like I don't know. I think by like weird, I kind of associate it like implicitly with sort of like good. We have a a different scale of weird. Uh, (laughs) It does have. I will. I will grant it has a church of the cosmic skull vibe. Yes, Um, for sure. Good things. Solid band. Check them out. I'll post a video. Um, You never think. You never talk about it. But um, (laughs) but one of the things that I want to bring up is the fact that 
the um, calling right back to the beginning is the fact that um, it's David Bowie the singer or David Bowie the performer being David Bowie the singer being David Bowie the actor performing this part of Thomas Jerome Newton and um, we never hear him sing and this is a point about the making of the film is that it was originally I think going to have a full Bowie score but then which I think was actually made Um, but then um, I might be wrong I'm misreading Wikipedia on that one (laughs) but um, but yeah so it kind of it keeps Bowie the singer really uh, an arm's length and there's a bit where there is a scene uh, where they sing Jerusalem uh, in the church as a hymn, and we don't hear him sing. We we he's kind of drowned out. We get a bit of a faint kind of uh, on the on the on the take, but yeah, we he's we don't get a full on Bowie rendition of of um, well, it's not Jerusalem. It's and did those feet in that is ancient. Jerusalem. I know the poem. I mean, the poem it's based on is Jerusalem, but the the hymn is called Jerusalem. Oh yeah, the poem is called "Ended Those Feet in Ancient Lands" and the hymn is Jerusalem. Okay, I'll give you that. But um, <laughs> you could be that. You mean okay. the thing I was right about? The thing you were right about. I'll agree <laughs> that we can look it up afterwards, and you'll be confirmed right about it. <laughs> Moving on, um, the the fact that they sing Jerusalem here is quite evocative. If we think back to our um, folk horror episode, when we think about um, our, our long discussion of Blake, when we were talking about blood on Satan's claw. The fact that it is talking about England, where Tommy is nominally from, um, or possibly space, by extension (laughs) of that being the foreigner in a foreign land, um, where it's England is the Jerusalem, but it's a made up England we never see in the film, um, is his home planet Albion? And or is he trying to create a new Albion on Earth through his uh, technological innovation? Through the Polaroid camera and the car phone. But by extension of that, is he failing to become uh, Jerusalem or the kind of uh, saviour figure in Blake's um, Blake's cosmology? Again, go back to our Blood of Saints Claw episode for a better, slightly better um, exposition on that. But is he instead becoming Loss, building the city of Golganuza, uh, which is, as as you'll remember, the city of like human artifice? And is he in fact creating the dark satanic mills? <laughs> But anyway, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to make sure we talked enough about um, the making of the film and Nicholas Rogue's contributions as a filmmaker because this is the this is our tribute episode to him. Um, and um, I think one of the, well, there's various points that are interesting to bring up the the bits I touched on earlier about the the hyper real visuals and the idea that you're seeing a kind of fake alien version of the normal world and all the evocations that that brings up. Um, We have some classic uh, Nicholas Rogue tropes. We get the constant fixation of mirrors that comes up a lot in Don't Look Now. Um, And that's used to a great extent because, you know, that's that's chiming with Bowie's strange character thing. Like he's he's the mirror of the mirror um, and is, is what we see ever the real man. Um, and that continues also into kind of his um, Riptorn's strange discussion of like cameras and energy transference through that uh, cameras which contain mirrors. Um, <laughs> so so you're constantly looking at a mirror um, if you're watching a film by Nicholas Rogue or indeed anyone or indeed a photograph. Um, but um, but the other things that we get we get um, he. Rogue kind of feeds into the Gnostic element with his visuals. There's a very, very striking cut um, between um, Mary Lou looking into a microscope and looking at some microscopic organisms and then going out 
outside to look through a telescope. And that's a very, that's a visual evocation of the as above, so below vibe. Um, and also, also it makes a lot of very good use of uh, David Bowie, the performer, because one of the first things we see of him, the first scene we see him introduced in um, is walking through this land from a great distance. And it's making, um, this is another thing that um, Tony Simmons, I found the name, <laughs> talks about is the fact that he was so ethereal, but he was bringing to the fore the um, the mime skills that David Bowie was so famous for, which he incorporated a lot into his Ziggy Stardust performances, and which I think I'm right in thinking he actually learned. He went to the classic legendary mime artist Marcel Marceau to learn. Uh, so that's brought in. But I think what what seems to be kind of coming up in here a lot is the fact that um, actually no one other key point is we've got to think about, which we. Um, which again is a direct link back to Don't Look Now, is the fact that time is presented so strangely in the film. Um, because there's there's the scene where Bowie can sort of, where Thomas Newton can see through time and he sees back to like settler yes. colonial era, which is a very strange kind of like, not secretary of a scene, it's just there. It's like, mm. oh, this is another thing he does. This is him experiencing human energy through his strange Gnostic technology prism <laughs> that he's able to create. And, um, and you know, there's, there's an element of, there's also an element of psychogeography building up, you know, built up through there, uh, which is a very stark juxtaposition to Don't Look Now, because Don't Look Now um, is very much about the artificial, the small, the cramped, the urban, and the kind of the 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 worldly. And we, I talked rather constantly about the fact that Don't Look Now and the the status of Donald Sutherland's character as a church builder is or church restorer is maintaining this link between the um, the kingdom of earth and the Civitas Dei and you know, the kingdom of heaven, which churches being these great constructions um, were meant to evoke. A visible, but, a vi- the uh, uh, visible showing of the kingdom, the liturgy yes. where heaven and earth meet. But the earthliness is underpinned by, uh, by um, Donald Sutherland's character because he's, he's highlighting the very, very earthly materiality of these churches, which is decaying. And which is being frantically preserved at great cost. Um, and then this is juxtaposed with um, this great vastness of America and the great open landscapes, which um, come up very, you know, there's some very, very striking scenes, particularly where I think it's where uh, Newton gets out of prison and he meets um, the Rip Torn character in the desert. And they just sit together and under this vast looming sky, which is kind of evocative of, um, of his other thing, of, you know, of... Um, well, of, of Twin Peaks, of everything, of his other, of his various works. Um, and also there's that kind of strange merging of the outside and the inside. We're never sure, you know, often we don't know if we're inside a building looking at like a picture of a um, of an outside scene projected on the walls. And this comes a lot, comes up a lot during the prison sequences. There's that brilliant bit where there's a, a ping pong table, which is, which is, um, in a weird room surrounded by photographs of trees, like kind of prints of trees to make it look like a woodland scene. I think there's even leaves on the floor or something, which is you know, merging the outside and the inside. And that's very strange because it's like as above, so below, so without, so within kind of thing. But in that kind of just rapid reeling off of bullet points about <laughs> Nick Rogue's filmmaking and his his uh, intense, very well-constructed cinematic, you know, um, visual language, which is a um, legacy of his work as a cinematographer, is 
how does this place our understanding of the relationship between Nicholas Rogue and David Bowie? And the point that I was that struck me when thinking about this is the fact that it's almost a parallel of um, of the relationship between Alban Grau and F.W. Murnau that we talked about in the Nosferatu episode. Alban Grau was this man possessed of a great occult vision, and F.W. Murnau was the man possessed of the artifice and the tools to bring this vision to reality, as he did with Nosferatu, and as we're perhaps seeing here with Nicholas Rogue. Nicholas Rogue may be an entirely secular materialist figure, or you know, however you want to, however you want to define that, but he is prese- he was creating a way that we can see the beyond to see the occult, the abstract, the intense um, unreality of. Um, of things that can never really be brought into material into material reality, which Bowie is himself transcending. The spirit speaks through us, even if we do not realize that it does. Yes, and um, and yeah, I think, I think I, that's it. That's 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 I, uh, that's the man who fell to earth, everyone. I don't. I think. I think. I think we've done Nicholas Rogue the justice we always really needed to do him because he is a magnificent filmmaker. Well. Uh... As and and al- David Bowie is a magnificent artist. Yes. Well, as is always, always, always the case with Weird Signal, we could continue this conversation indefinitely. But coming up on about an hour 50, depending on how well we edit this. That's not bad. That's actually less long than some of our other episodes. <laughs> this is true. Um, this is the point where we're going to leave you. But uh, as ever, we love you. And we will be back. We'll be back soon to talk about something else. But until such a time as when, I think we need to call it, and I'm going to say, keep it weird. And stay signal. The The discourse discourse is real. real. Good night.